0: Welcome to the Every Word Podcast. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Every Word Podcast. It is great to be with each and every one of you once again, and uh, we pray God's blessings over you this new year. We pray that this is going to be a great year for each and every one of you. Uh, We are definitely looking forward to it. Well, we are continuing on with our study of Genesis, and today we are in Genesis chapter 33. Um, We are going to be kicking off uh, with our reading um, for verses 1 through 11 in Genesis chapter 33. So I'm going to go ahead and read those verses, and then I'm going to hand it over to my buddy, AJ. So um, here we go. Genesis chapter 33, verses 1 through 11, reading out of the New Living Translation. Verse 1. Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. He put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. Threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, Who are these people with you? These are the children God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children and bowed before him. Next came Leah with her children, and they bowed before him. Finally, Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. And what were all the flocks and herds I met as I came? Esau asked. Jacob replied, they are a gift, my Lord, to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty. Esau answered, keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob insisted, no, if I have found favor with you, please accept this gift from me. And what a relief to see your friendly smile. It is like seeing the face of God. Please take this gift I have brought you for God has been very gracious to me. I have more than enough. And because Jacob insisted, Esau finally accepted the gift. All right, AJ, let's go into this. Let's dive into it.
1: All right. Well, thanks for the reading there, Brother Ethan. And I am going to go ahead and go ahead and get started here in the very beginning of this chapter. So... In Genesis 32, if you remember, we talked about kind of Jacob's transformation into Israel. So as I go through my notes here, um, forgive me if I kind of flip-flop back and forth between calling him Jacob and calling him Israel. I've noticed in my notes there's some places where I call him either or. So just remember if I'm talking about Jacob or I'm talking about Israel, I'm talking about the same person. So just Quick disclaimer on that as we get started. But as we kick off Genesis 33, we see that um, Jacob, he's beginning to see Esau kind of coming over the horizon as he makes his way towards him. And he wants to get his his caravan or his house in order, I guess, uh, as he is approaching his brother and, and the 400 men that are accompanying him. And we see Jacob, he puts his family in a very particular order, most likely um In Jacob's opinion, this was a order from least to most valuable with the people in the front being the the people that he, I guess, deemed, uh, I don't want to say necessarily valuable. I don't know if that's the correct word or not. But in in Jacob's mind of hierarchy for his family, these are the ones that he was the least concerned with. And he wanted to ensure... If anybody was going to be taken or affected, if Esau was to meet him uh, in a hostile manner, it would be the servant wives and the children of the servant wives. Um, And then in the middle, you had uh, Leah and her children that she had. And then at the very back, so the ones that you could interpret that Jacob had the most affection for or he prized the most or the ones that he wanted to protect the most uh, was Rachel and, uh, her son Joseph. So. I think it's a pretty safe assumption, like I said, to, to say that this was a precautionary method in the event that when Jacob met Esau again, they haven't really spoken to each other much. They haven't really seen each other at all since uh, the events when Jacob stole the blessing of Esau and Jacob essentially goes on the run. And the last thing that he hears from Esau is, hey, as soon as I get through mourning my father, I'm going to kill you. So that was the last interaction they really had. So Jacob is not really aware of, if he's still carrying that hatred with him, um, you know we i think we talked about this on a previous episode he's coming with 400 men so you know that's not always the most comforting of things to think about when you're hearing about a 400 man army coming to meet you along with your brother um, you don't know if that's you know a caravan of friendly people or if that's an army coming to vanquish you so um, he's doing this kind of as a level of protection to kind of protect those that he values now notice that joseph is in the back and this leads me to think that Israel Jacob um, he was somewhat aware of that joseph would be a very special child uh, to him and he would be kind of the one to carry on that covenant with god so uh, you know it may have been some forethought on with uh, with israel with jacob there um and his thoughts of putting him at, at the back you could also look at it as you know he always had the greatest adoration and greatest love for rachel this was the child that he had with rachel so again um you see rachel's in the in the back as well so <clears throat> Again, it could have been for those reasons as well, because he was the child of, of his most beloved Rachel. Now, in verse 3, we see that Jacob actually does, for a change of pace, go ahead of his people, uh, and he's leading them uh, to meet his brother Esau. This is a little bit different than kind of what we saw in the beginnings of chapter 32, our last chapter, when Jacob sends messengers ahead to begin to speak with Esau and begin to, you know, kind of say, Hey, I'm on my way, but he actually stays behind. So I think that's a pretty good testimony to that change that we talked about at the very end of chapter 32, when he wrestles with the angel and, you know, the Bible says that, you know, you are no longer Jacob, but now you are Israel. You are a new man, you are a new creature, so to speak. So, um, I think this is kind of a, a first sign of, The man that that got out of that tent after that all night wrestle is no longer the same man uh, that was afraid to kind of go in the forefront. Now we see Jacob is kind of stepping up and being more of a leader than he was. Um, He's more willing to risk, I guess, his own self. Now, in this verse in particular, we see that Jacob bows before his brother Esau seven times. It records seven times. And yeah, that is a reference to God's holy number. But um, this was also, when you do the study on it, it was also customary for the day when someone of little to no status uh, was to greet or interact with an individual of any type of authority or class. So in other words, Jacob's gesture here, uh, he is showing honor to his brother and saying that I, Jacob, I am beneath you. And honestly, if you think about it, when you think about the context of the relationship he had with his brother growing up, this is probably the first time that Jacob has ever willingly been beneath his brother in in both of their lives, you know, because. Even coming out of the womb, he was the heel grasper. He always wanted to be first, and even though maybe he wasn't first all the time, he probably never would have willingly admitted it growing up. But this is the first time he ever takes that step of humility and honors his brother as being the firstborn, as being the the uh, the more noble, I guess, to say you know the 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 one that is more deserving of the honor. So again, I think that's a good testimony of the change that happened between when he was jacob and now he is israel so going down to verse 4 when you you read verse 4 you can only imagine the sigh of relief that jacob must have experienced when his brother runs toward him you know he grabs him with open arms essentially Um, he's not running towards him in hate he's not running towards him in anger but he's running towards him in love he is so happy to see his brother to see his brother is you know doing well that he's made it all this time Excuse me. And I think this also shows a little bit of growth as well in Esau, because if you remember the last time, last accounts we've had of Esau, you know, when he missed out on his blessing, he was, he was very, um, Let's just say he's a big cry be about it. I mean, that's kind of what we—the conclusion that we came to. Um, so I think there, that you see some maturity as well in Esau in this scripture as well. Um, that he's not holding on to that grudge. You know, he's just rejoicing at the fact of seeing his long lost, long lost brother, and it reminded me of the love that God has for us. And specifically, I guess it kind of touched a little bit in my memory of the story of kind of the prodigal son and how the father was so thrilled when his son returned home and you know just like in that story when the father didn't care that the son had wasted his inheritance or that he originally was ungrateful for his previous accommodations we see that Esau he doesn't really care anymore that Jacob had stolen his birthright and his blessing he's just happy to have his brother back again he's happy to know that his brother has made it you know he's he has done well he's got this huge family he's got all these possessions he is He has survived and he has actually thrived, actually. So... Um, you know, and God is the same way with us. He, he doesn't care where we've been or how long we've been away from him. But if we will return to him and we seek his face again, you know, he'll meet us with loving arms, just like Esau did when Jacob came back, you know, and, and the prodigal son and all that. It, God is the same way. You know, it doesn't matter uh, may, what maybe happened um, in that moment when you, you walked away from God. But if you ever come back, if you decide to come back, he will always welcome you with open arms. But moving from there um excuse me In verses eight through 11, I wanted to kind of notate the determination of Jacob to bestow these gifts unto Jacob, or excuse me, unto Esau. Esau clearly states that he's got plenty and he doesn't really desire Jacob's gifts. So why really would Jacob be so adamant? You know, why would he be so adamant about, Hey, I really want you to take these gifts. If Esau's like, Hey, I got a caravan full of stuff myself. I don't need any more. Um, so why why is Jacob kind of, you know, hey, take this, please. So in my study, I came across a couple of different commentaries. So one commentary that I read had an interesting point, I thought. Um, and this was their their thought was that this could have been Jacob's way of, quote, blessing Esau since Esau's blessing was stolen by Jacob. Um, This was maybe a small attempt of Jacob to kind of try to restore some of what Esau had had, I don't want to say missed out on, but some of what Jacob had taken away from Esau by taking the blessing. This was Jacob's way of saying, hey, I want I now want to bestow a blessing on you. Um, Then another commentary that I read said that in the culture of its day, one would never accept the gifts from an enemy. So. With Esau accepting Jacob's gifts, this was kind of an additional assurance on Jacob's part that Esau did not view him as an enemy. If he could convince Esau to accept these, then that was Esau essentially confirming that I do not hold you in my sight as an enemy. So that could have been another very valid reason that he was very adamant about Esau um, accepting those gifts. So with that being said, that's all I have on these first 11 verses. So I'll turn it back over to you, Ethan.
0: All right. Thanks, AJ. I, I had some very similar thoughts. So, you know, great thoughts. And and I'm just going to try to add to, to what you've already said. Uh, I totally agree here that Jacob, um, he is very insistent in getting that gift over to, to Esau. And, and for sure, it's a almost like a peace offering that he's trying to Uh, procure between them both to just make sure that no violence occurs and makes sense, right? As far as he knows, up to this point, Esau has been out to kill him. He's got 400 armed men. I mean, it looks like Esau is out here to kill him. And just imagine his surprise though, when Esau comes and hugs him and kisses him and weeps over him. Uh, So I'm sure Jacob is just totally taken by surprise here. So Like you said, gifts um, in this particular culture are very uh, interesting, very different from us in our society today. You know, with with us, there are many, many gifts that don't have any strings attached. Like you can get a, a free food sample, right, from Sam's or from Costco, but you're not obligated to buy the food, right? You can get a free trial of Disney plus, for example, for a month, but you don't have any obligation to continue watching it and paying for it. But in, in this day and time, there was no such thing as a gift without any obligations. So if you were offered a gift, there were three things that you could do. The first thing is you could accept the gift, but if you did this, now you're under some sort of obligation to the other party to return the favor. Didn't have to be now, but sometime in the future, they could bring up and say, hey, I gave you this gift. Remember this 10 years ago? You owe me. And so there is this, there are definitely strings attached to, uh, to the gift. The second thing that you could do is you could accept the gift and immediately return the favor with a gift of equal value. So that means you're under no obligation to the other party. And of course, the last thing is you could refuse the gift and avoid any obligation to the other party. So Jacob being insistent here that Esau would accept the gift, basically he wants to make sure that Esau is not going to attack and kill him. Basically, Esau, if you accept this gift, it's an insurance policy for for me, that uh, you're not going to come kill me. I'm not going to come kill you. We're going to be friends. We're going to be on good terms. And so that's the whole point of Jacob being so insistent with a gift. You know, uh, something I learned uh, pretty recently is that this whole idea of you can receive a free gift, but there's an obligation behind it. That's the way the Bible uh, talks about free gifts. That's exactly how it is with um, our salvation. The New Testament talks about uh, salvation being a free gift from God. And the terminology it's using there is is grace. And actually, during that time, they... Uh, they actually had a, a model of this in in everyday life. You know, when you think of like the mafia, right? There's like this head honcho guy, and they're in power, but uh, they could extend grace to certain people, right? And say, okay, I'm going to help you with your business if you're going to be loyal to me that's, it's a free gift to, to, to them. You know, they, they have nothing that they can bring to the, the mafia boss, if you would. Uh, they, They're the puny people. They're the people who, who have nothing to bring. And so that's a gift of grace that he extends to them. But there's an obligation, an expectation that comes with that, that you're going to be loyal to me. And that's exactly the same thing with God's gift of salvation is he gives it to everybody. He gives the Holy ghost to anybody who's willing to receive it. And when you're born again, it's, it's a free gift. It's not for you just to feel good and move on with your life and, and not have any trials or, or troubles and be rich and be blessed and be healthy. No, it's a, when you receive that, once you've been cleansed of your sin, now there's this obligation to come and leave everything beside, set everything aside and, and and follow, follow Jesus and be loyal to him no matter what. And so th- this whole idea of gifting and, and, and a reciprocating obligation is all throughout the Bible. Um, we, and we see it here, we see it in the gift of salvation. So something I just wanted to point it out. So you, you mentioned it, uh, a lot but Jacob's humility is really evident throughout this passage. So, he calls Esau my lord in verses 8, 13, 14, and 15. And he calls himself Esau's servant in verse 14. So, Jacob is just he's he he recognizes that he may have done something wrong and he is trying to do his best to uh acknowledge it and be humble and uh, trying to atone for perhaps the wrong that he may have done uh, to Esau here. Now Esau shows Jacob some incredible grace, and uh, that, this was kind of the thing that really jumped out to me when I was reading this passage. Was, was man, if I were Esau, you bet I I would you know be mad. But Esau doesn't do that. He shows some some incredible grace. Jacob has been worried about Esau's wrath for about two decades. It's a long time. And, uh, you know, at all, all, all this time, right, you know, he's, he's constantly worried about what Esau is going to do to him all, all the way up to this encounter. And so uh, when he finally does meet Esau, instead of Esau just taking him out right there and sh- showing ve- vengeance, he shows mercy instead, and you kind of touched on this many many people see god kind of in a similar way like how i would if i were in esau's shoes i would be showing vengeance i think a lot of people see god that same way he, we see god as he's a righteous god and and some some uh Ways of thinking, you know, maybe he's a god who takes pleasure in hurling lightning bolts and sending plagues, sending pandemics. Right, you know, he's he's a he could be a wrathful god in our imagination who likes to bring destruction. But this is actually not like God at all. And um, we read in Ezekiel chapter thirty-three, verse eleven, we read just how we, I guess, we get a glimpse of of the character of God and what he's really like. At heart, and so Ezekiel thirty-three and eleven, God says, "As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from their ways and live." Turn, turn from your evil ways. So God is not a God who takes pleasure in killing, and shockingly, he's not even he's not even a God who takes pleasure in killing wicked men. I mean, that's amazing. He, he, even if you are an evil man, a wicked man, a Hitler, a Stalin, you know what? He's still a God who seeks repentance and reconciliation. And so if we would just make up in our minds that now is the time to go to, and meet with God, not worry about how he's going to ra- react, we'll find out that that he's, he is ready for reconciliation rather than recompense. There's a... Uh, in, in this chapter, uh, Jacob even tells Esau, "He's like I'm. I'm relieved to see your friendly smile. It's like seeing the face of God." And that just reminded me of of Numbers chapter six, that blessing that um, the priest uh, recites over over the people of Israel when he says, "May God's face shine upon you. May God be pleased with you." And so. Uh, I don't know if this text really is trying to show Esau as kind of representing God and how he is, but maybe we can kind of read into it and say, you know, hey, if if we're willing to come and seek reconciliation and repentance, and, you know, maybe we'd find that God's face isn't one that's angry, but one that's smiling and shining down upon us and, and ready for that reconciliation. So. That's all I got. All right. Well, great thought is
1: great thoughts as always. I uh, Thoroughly enjoyed uh, your take on everything, uh, especially kind of like what you were talking about with um, you know God's face is always it, more times than not he, he is going to be merciful to us, you know, and He He does not enjoy necessarily you know bringing His wrath, but He will if He needs to. But as you said, that scripture in Ezekiel, you know, He would rather the wicked turn then see their see their destruction. So um well done and I am going to go ahead and pick up in our reading and I will pick up in cha- uh, chapter verse 12 and I will take us down to the end of the chapter in verse 20. So picking up in verse 12. Verse 12 says well Esau said let's be going. I will lead the way. But Jacob replied, "'You can see, my lord, that some of the children are very young, "'and the flocks and herds have their young, too. "'If they are driven too hard, even for one day, all the animals could die. "'Please, my lord, go ahead of your servant. "'We will follow slowly, at a pace that is comfortable for the livestock and for the children. "'I will meet you in Seir.' "'All right,' Esau said, "'but at least let me assign some of my men to guide and protect you.' Jacob responded, "'That's not necessary. "'It's enough that you've received me warmly, my lord.' So Esau turned around and started back to Seir that same day. Jacob, on the other hand, traveled to on to Succoth. There he built himself a house and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place was named Succoth, which means shelters. Later, having traveled all the way from Padanaram, Jacob arrived safely at the town of Shechem in the land of Canaan. There he set up camp outside of town. Jacob bought the plot of land where he camped from the family of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And there he built an altar and named it El Elohi Israel. All right, Ethan, I'll turn it right over to you.
0: All right. Well, I don't have a whole lot here, uh, so I will be quick and brief. So verse 18 tells us that Jacob arrived safely. And he arrives safely in the land of Canaan. So this is using the same language as uh, Jacob's vow in Genesis 28 and 21, which says, if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. Well, Jacob is now in the land of Canaan, his father's home, if you would. And, Full circle for Jacob, in spite of all of his doubts and shortcomings, God has blessed Jacob and delivered him from the wrath of both Laban and now Esau. He had fled in terror to Haran from Canaan, but now he was back in the land that was promised to his grandfather, Abraham, and his father, Isaac. So what does Jacob do in this moment? He builds an altar. And he pronounces a proclamation before God. And he calls that altar, that that particular place, El Elohe Israel, which means God is the God of Israel. So in this one statement, there's a few things that go on here. But in this one statement, uh, he accepts his identity as belonging to the Lord, by pronouncing his given name, Israel. Remember in the previous chapter, after he wrestled with the angel, wrestled with God, he was bestowed the name Israel, which means he who strives or fights with God or he who prevails with God. And so by saying this name Israel, Jacob is accepting God's purpose in his life And the fact that he doesn't belong to himself, but that he finally belongs to Yahweh. And so not only does he acknowledge his identity, but in pronouncing this name, El Elohe Israel, over the altar, he also confesses that God is the God uh, of Israel. Or in other words, that God is now my God. And so this, this is where it c- c- uh, culminates for, for Jacob and his vow. Now he's finally there. He is formally announcing that Yahweh is now his God and that he belongs to Yahweh. He steps into that patriarchal role that God designed him to be. So really just awesome moment for, for the story of Jacob. Interestingly... This happens to be the same exact place where Abraham built his first altar to the Lord in the land of Canaan. Now, there could be something really big, really deep there. I haven't thought about it enough to 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 uncover it yet, but really interesting fact that this this place is Shechem is is the same place where Abraham built his first altar. So, really just a huge full circle for the entire story of Jacob, the story of, of even, even Abraham and, uh, coming full circle, uh, right here in Shechem at the altar called El Elohe Israel. So just awesome moment, uh, in the story of this chapter. So that's all I got. I'll hand it right over to you.
1: All right. Well, enjoyed it. Um, yeah, you, you did a great job. You brought up that scripture, um, when he, and when, when he had named, uh, not only the altar, but even before that, when you talked about, he arrived safely. And then you brought up, when you brought up that scripture, it's like, Oh, I forgot all about that. But that's a very valid point. You know, he made that vow to God basically said, if you will get me there safely, if you'll allow me to get there safely, then I will, you, you will be my God essentially. And here the God is fulfilling, you know, that part, that part and the final part of that vow that uh, that he made uh, with Jacob. So, yeah, great, great job bringing that back up, as well as, you know, the the importance of the altar that he built there and the the fact that, you know, he, he now fully proclaims you know Yahweh like you said to be the god uh, of Israel and his god so uh nice thoughts nice job bringing that apart or bringing that across so uh, I'll go ahead and get into mine it's not long either um so hopefully it'll be just a few moments but so when I initially read, so verses 12 through 17, 12 through 17 is that portion where um, you've got that where Esau's like, hey, okay, let's let's get going. Let's head back basically to my home country. And Jacob is doing everything he can essentially to not do that. Basically, Esau, you go ahead. I'll catch up later. Um, but then we read later that Esau heads out to Seir, CCR Se, however you want to say it, and Jacob goes on to Succoth. Um, so they they part they essentially part ways, um, but he or Jacob kind of leads Esau to think that he's just going to be following up behind him, but he kind of deceives him. So. It got me wondering, you know, I guess from face value, why would Jacob not go with Esau? You know, they've had this great brotherly moment, this reuniting. Everything seems to be well. Everybody loves each other. There's no hostility. Why would there be this hesitation to not join Esau, at least to follow him to his homeland, to enjoy some time with him before going off and doing whatever he needed to do? Um, So in my study, I came across two pretty intriguing ideas, um, that have been postulated as to why Jacob chose not to follow Esau into his homeland of Seir. Well, you in know, another reason, let me go ahead and clarify this before I get started on these two. So if you'll read back a couple of chapters ago, um, God did actually tell him to, to go back into the land of his father. So that was, that's probably the number one reason. If you want to boil it down, um, jacob or israel at this point was being obedient to god he was he was going back to the land that god had commanded him to be in but there's a couple other things that might have potentially played in some things that might be good to think about um so one of them is okay the thought of jacob is now israel so we read in the last chapter that you know Jacob. We've already talked about it several times. He's now Israel. He's been conquered by God. He's a new man, um, so to speak, in his eyes um, and in God's eyes. So, therefore. A possibility why Jacob didn't have any desire to go with Esau is that Jacob's aware that his lineage is going to form a holy and a separate nation. And he knows that he doesn't need to be intermingling with the people that are not his own. And, you know, okay, what do I mean by that? Well, we know that the future of the Edomites, uh, which is Esau's children, they will eventually become enemies at one point of the Israelites. So, in fact, if you read on further in Numbers and Deuteronomy, you'll see that the Israelites really are told to not have to not have anything to do with the Edomites except for uh, basically passing through their territory on their way to Canaan. Um, so it, it, it kind of gets a little bit hostile a little later down the road. Um, and you know, you could kind of say that the Bible—you could look at it in one way and say the Bible backs this theory up a little bit based on Jacob's separation. From Laban uh, and his people back in Genesis 31. And if you recall, Jacob and Laban essentially set up a boundary that both of them agreed they would not cross. So it was this hard line. We talked about that line of separation that established the separation from the idolatrous house of Laban and the God fearing children of Israel. Or at least, you know, now that Israel has fully accepted God to be his God. And another small point uh, for this theory is the land in which Jacob winds up. And I already about it and you've talked about it, that sucketh it is in Canaan, it is in his father's land, the land of God's promise, whereas Sierra is in the land of the Edomites. So essentially what that is boils down to or the thought process there is it is that now <clears throat> Israel he understands now his people, they are, they're are—they're called to be separate. They're not called to be intermingled with the Edomites. They're not called to be intermingled with Laban's family, with all those people of the separate nations. They are called to be God's people, to be separate. And you'll see this separation kind of continue on and as we continue to read uh, further down the road in the Bible. Um, the other one is, and I thought it was just kind of an interesting take that you can kind of think about that could have been going through Jacob's head as well was separation from his rival. So growing up, we talked about it. Jacob's entire mission, we know, was to be the greatest son of the family, to overtake his brother. And though Jacob at this point in his life, he's grown significantly as a man, and he is, for the most part, laid aside those ambitions, especially after his transformation into Israel. But who's to say that that sense of competition and envy would not have returned, at least in a form maybe of temptation if Jacob would have stayed with Esau. See, in the last chapter, Jacob, he's finally free of his past. He's got his new name. He's not the heel grasper. He's not the deceiver. He's Israel. But rivalry among siblings, and especially twins, a lot of times is very hard to break. So therefore, some think that Jacob's separation from Esau was intentional, with Jacob's thoughts kind of going on the lines of he did not want to regress into that old man that he once was. He wanted to fully be separate from his old title and his old ways. He wanted to to embrace this new man that he was so you know and we see maybe a little bit of a sign of that when Jacob tries to give the gifts to Esau um, they they if you want to say they argue, it's not a very intense argument. It's more banter about whether or not Esau is going to take it. But, you know, it may appear as a minor squabble here. Jacob could have maybe seen it as a wake-up call that if he would have stayed with Esau, um, he'd be back in competition with his brother before he knew it. And knowing this was not the will of God in his life, he chose to part ways with his brother after reconciling. So he reconciled, he made sure everything was good, but he basically made that stance that, okay, it's not not God's will for me to follow my brother. As tempting as I'm sure that may have been for him after their, their peaceful reunion, he understood that separation was what God was wanting. God wanted him to be back in the land of Canaan, wanted him to be back in the land of his fathers. Um, but I, I think, again, the number one reason is God did call for him to be in his father's land, to go back to the land of Canaan. But I think these things that I brought up could have been additional thoughts he could have been processing, um, as he made that decision to not follow Esau and to be adamant about, you know, not going with him and choosing to go into, uh, Succoth. So, and the last thing I'll note is Jacob's choice to settle in, uh, in Succoth. So, I was reading and there were some, I, I saw some thoughts on when back in Genesis 31 and 13, that some people thought that that was God's way of instructing Jacob to return to Bethel and not necessarily to Succoth. And now I went back and reread it. I didn't see it so much as a command. Um, but if you read ahead in Genesis 34 and 35, you'll actually see that, um, you know, when he, that even though he is in Succoth, it, it, his time there is not going to be so pleasant, I guess is, is my thing that suck a of Shechem where he's at this area, especially in the next chapter, it won't be that pleasant for him and his family. So, um, it, you know, it is interesting to kind of wonder, um, you know, why would he stop short of Bethel? Because actually after 34, when we get into chapter 35, um, he actually, that's his next destination. He wants to go to Bethel. So based on what I could tell, it only looked like a 20 mile difference, between the two locations um, and even in that time it wasn't really that tremendous of a distance to have traversed so no one seems to know but again like I said we we do know that probably next chapter we're going to read um, the place that he's at right now it's going to it's going to cause a little bit of trouble for him so you know there's kind of that open-ended question why didn't he keep going to Bethel? We don't know. There's no definite answer, but it's just kind of one of those things you can kind of ponder about. But, um, but anyway, that's that's all I've really got uh, uh, for this chapter. So, with that being said, I'll turn it back over to you, Ethan.
0: All right, great thoughts. We're very interesting there about how close Bethel and Sukoth, or second, however you want to say it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) How how close they are? Interesting thought, and, and definitely. Another as we've seen, like so much through Genesis, you know, another open ended uh, right. question that's that's open for interpretation or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or d- different takes. So, yeah, it just just makes it all the more interesting. Right. <laughs> right. I'm sure yeah. we'll we'll definitely tease that out when we uh, record next chapter Genesis oh, uh, yeah. 34. So for sure. All right. Well, great chapter. We are I enjoyed at, it. at the end. So, And it's not at the hour mark yet, so you're welcome, listeners. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Shortest episode we've had in a while, so. Right. Happy New Year. (laughs) Merry Christmas from the Every Word Podcast. That's right. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for tuning in once again. It's been a great time. Happy New Year, and we are praying God's blessings be upon you uh, this new year. And we we look forward to getting back with you next week. You guys have a great one.